Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Hey, good morning, New Covenant. Well, welcome to New Covenant Church. Good morning, New Covenant. There we go. A few years ago, actually quite a few years ago, Jolene and I got to do one of the coolest things. We went to this little town in Illinois called Galena. Uh, And in Galena, we got to go explore these underground caverns. And I don't know how many hundreds of steps we walked down, but you're hundreds of feet underneath the earth and you're getting to see all these really cool stalactites and stalagmites and just really cool caverns. But we were also told that without the guide leading us with their headlamp and some of the lights they put down there, people get lost down there and never make it out. In fact, it's so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face. People end up walking off little cliffs. And then I did a little study that was kind of interesting. When people start to go crazy because it's so dark, you'll actually start to see false views of light, thinking that you see something, and then people will walk towards that, and that's what causes them to walk into things and maybe get knocked out or walk off a cliff. And as I'm thinking through all of that, man, am I thankful that when it comes to life, and especially when it comes to eternity, God has not left us in the dark. And yet, there are people all around us that are looking at false forms of light for something to bring them meaning, for something to bring them significance and purpose, and they're looking for it in all the wrong places. And today we're going to see that the light at the end of the tunnel that we are longing for is actually the worship of God. The reason that we have these deep desires for relationship, we have these deep desires to be married, we have these deep desires for pleasure and satisfaction, it all comes from the fact that we were all created as worshipers. Do you know that your neighbor is a worshiper? You're like, wait a minute, my neighbor didn't go to church. You don't have to go to church to be a worshiper. You have to be a human being. We're all created to be worshipers. The problem is we get ourselves in trouble with misdirected worship. And what today is going to be all about is it's going to be about worship. We're going to look at two more reasons why we should worship God. Today is Revelation chapter 15. We're going to make it through the entire chapter because it's only eight verses long. It is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. And as you're going to see, it gives us a little glimpse at what I would call that proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. Now, we've been studying through some hard passages, a lot of judgment, a lot of plagues, a lot of things being poured out upon mankind. And in Revelation 15, we get this little glimpse at the end of the tunnel. When God's judgment is all done, when it's finished, when he has vanquished evil, when he has cast Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all that are evil and wicked into the lake of fire, what is that going to be like? And so we're going to get a glimpse of that this morning. So if you would, if you take your Bibles, go to Revelation chapter 15, and then if you wouldn't mind just standing with me in honor of Jesus, and we're going to read Revelation 15, all eight verses. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? 
for you alone are worthy. All nations will come and worship you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Thank you, gang. So one big thing that I'm praying we walk away with this morning is knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel. In other words, we are going to be in heaven with the Lord someday, actually before we know it. And what's at the end of that tunnel? It's the glorious worship of God Almighty and everything that he's done. As I said, we are all created to worship. Some worship self, some worship nature, some worship money, some worship a false god, and some worship the true God of the universe. But, make no mistake about it, we're all worshipers. What we worship is either going to bring glorious reward and peace that surpasses all understanding, or it's going to leave us anxious all the time because it can never fulfill. And that's what an idol does. Now immediately when I use the word idol, what do you think of? You think of something that someone sets up like a statue, or you think of something that people are bowing down to. And ultimately, an idol is anything that we worship. How do I know what I worship? Well, I found Dr. Chuck Swindoll to write something on this that was quite helpful. Any of you all know who Dr. Chuck Swindoll was? Dr. Charles Swindoll? He actually wrote a great little piece on worship. And in that, he said, if you want to know what you worship today in modern day, or you want to know what your neighbor or your family members worship, just take a look at two things. Look at your checkbook and look at your day planner. Where the majority of your money goes and the majority of your time goes is ultimately what you worship. So what a good practice for us. Think through what do you spend the majority of your money on and the majority of your time on? What do you spend the majority of your time thinking about or doing? We're going to see from God's word today that there are two reasons why worshiping God Almighty above all else is worth it. So we're going to take a look simply at two reasons for worshiping God Almighty. We're going to break it down in two parts, Revelation 15, 1 to 4, and then 5 through 8. So let's go back to verses 1 through 4. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who conquered the beast and its image and the number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. John's first big point for us is worship God. Worship him for his perfect and powerful character as well as his victory. Do you know your victory in Christ is sealed? Do you know there's nothing that you have to do to win the war? The war has already been won. 
Let me take us back to verse 1, and this is where we're going to have some fun breaking down this passage. But the first thing that John says is that he saw another sign in heaven. A sign is simply a symbol to teach an important lesson. And what's the important lesson that John wanted us to know this morning? Well, it's our very first point. Know that God's character is powerful, it's perfect, and because of that, he's already secured the victory. We don't have to sit back wondering if God's going to win. We don't have to sit back wondering, my goodness, with all that's going on in our culture today, with all that's going on in our society, should I be worried about whether or not God is still on the throne? Gang, we are not all that unique. Let me just tell you that the things that you see happening, that we think, because we've seen them, are the worst that man could get. Read back into Bible times, read back into Bible history, and look at the practices of the Assyrians. Look at the practices of the Babylonians. Look at the practices of the Medo-Persians. Go all the way to Greece and Rome. Or go further back than that and look at the Egyptians. The practices that they went through were awful. And yet, God was still on the throne. We also see that God had victory over every single one of those nations. That God's people should have never had victory over had it not been for God himself stepping in. Now it says at the end of this verse that the wrath of God is finished. That word finished in the Greek literally means to have reached its goal. God will have reached his goal. Now it's going to be bad. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 12, speaking of the seven year tribulation that's coming, says that people will become more rare than fine gold. So God is going to be doing a mighty work. In verse 2 it says that he appeared he saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. This sea of glass is most definitely symbolic of God's holiness and in God's, God's purity. And then it's mixed with fire because it revolves around his judgment. Now, we live in a world that says we shouldn't judge anybody. In fact, I would say one of the most misquoted Bible verses, probably one of the top five, is judge not or you will be judged. And then we stop there. That's one verse. But remember that verse is completely out of context because prior to that, Jesus said this, don't go and try to remove the speck from your brother's eye until you remove the plank from your own eye. But once you've done that, go and make a right judgment. See, God has to judge because he's all holy and all perfect. And you and I as believers, we should make judgments. We should be wise. We should be discerning to just simply look at people and say, you know what, I shouldn't judge you, so just live the way you want. If their lifestyle is destructive and it is leading them away from Christ, the most unloving thing that we could possibly do is just leave them in their sin because we don't want to rock the boat. Let me encourage you, New Covenant Church, rock the boat a little bit. Be different than the rest of the world. Now, that being said, be careful with how we do our judging. We recognize sin in unbelievers, and therefore we want to show them that Jesus has come and has got something way better for them. But we should expect that. We should expect unbelievers to live like unbelievers. So don't freak out when an unbeliever lives like an unbeliever. What should appall us is when fellow believers live like unbelievers. And that's where it is completely right to judge a fellow believer's actions. This is not me saying this. This is the word of God saying this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes very, very clear what business, business is it of mine to judge those outside the church, but those inside the church, 
I'm supposed to judge. Now again, it's interesting that we see the sea of glass, which symbolizes God's purity, mixed with fire, which speaks of his judgment. I'm hoping and I am praying that we are a people that are mixed with both because of the fact that we recognize God's word and who he is. We also recognize what sin is and unholiness is. And unfortunately, I think even as believers, we have gotten so desensitized to sin that it doesn't really bother us. I hope and I pray that for the rest of my life, when something sinful is in front of my face, that it bothers me. I don't get to a point where I'm searing my conscience. Now we read about a a group or some folks in verses 3 and 4 that John gives this really amazing description of. It says, they sing the song of Moses. So this is the group of people that are standing beside the sea of glass that's mingled with fire. They're holding harps to God in their hands. And what are they doing? They're singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, what is this deal with the song of Moses and what is that all about? Well, in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, the Israelites have just been freed from the bondage, their bondage to the Egyptians. God had parted the Red Sea. He allowed them to cross, and then he closed it up, taking out their enemies. And when they get to the other side, what's the first thing they do? They sing of God's goodness. Now, here's why I believe that is vitally important. They could have gotten to the other side and immediately began to complain. God, we've done all this walking. My feet hurt. God, now I'm really hungry. Where's my food? God, I'm really tired. Where's my bed? Where is the local Hyatt? I need something comfy to sleep in. But they didn't. They stopped and they sung the song of the Lamb, which was a song of deliverance, praising God for all that he had done. Here's why, again, I think this is vitally important for us today. I won't point at you. I'll point at myself. I have a tendency, when things don't go my way, to whine and complain. But I don't have this natural tendency or propensity to thank God for all the things that went well. We had a bunch of flat tires when we moved here, like five within a six-month period. And I found myself complaining, here we go again, i got to fix another tire. But how many days did I praise God for the times that I was able to drive over here or to the gym or to the grocery store to get food, which I was allowed to put in my face on four good tires. And so I'm going to give you the same challenge. I'm going to give myself the challenge that I gave first service, and that is, what if you went this entire week with not allowing yourself to have one complaining word come out of your mouth, and you simply did what these folks did here in the book of Revelation? They sing the song of Moses. Now again, don't forget what the song of Moses is. It's a song of deliverance. God delivered them from sheer death. God delivered them from sure death, and they praised the Lord for it. So what did they sing? Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What if we stopped and we just had a worship service where we praised God for what he had made and what he has done? How long would we be here? We should be here a really long time. Sometimes you think pastor's long-winded. Just imagine if we did a worship service where all we did is just had everybody here just cry out the good things that God has done in your life. What if we did that? 
Now, the only way that we are going to get to a point where we are constantly praising Jesus for what he has done is if we treasure him above everything else. Again, a day of confession, but I don't always do a good job of treasuring Jesus above all else. I have other things that fight for my affections, and I give in to those things. And it's interesting that even when life is in turmoil, even when it is in chaos, if I am treasuring Jesus above all else, I can experience a peace and a sense of purpose that doesn't come with anything else. On the flip side, I know people that have all the money in the world. They never have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. They have the biggest house, the fastest car, and yet they always seem like there is some type of fear or anxiety in their life. They're always worried about what's going to happen to all that money that's in the bank, what's going to happen to that fast car, or what's going to happen to their health. And I love, love, love that if we treasure Jesus above all else, we don't have to worry about any of those things. How do I get to a point where I treasure Jesus above all else? Well, are you ready for the test again? What's our mission statement at New Covenant Church? Know Jesus and make him known. The more I get to know him, the more I treasure him. Well, let me go on to one other thing. Not only is God worthy of our worship because of his perfect and powerful character along with his victory, but there's something else we see in verses 5 through 8. It says, After this I looked... And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." Here's our second reason for worshiping God. Outside of his perfect and powerful character, also his vindication. What does vindication mean? It means that for all the stuff that we've ever gone through as believers, maybe for all of the evil that's ever come your way, there is light at the end of the tunnel. God's going to take care of all of that, which is the reason I believe that Jesus could look at his followers and say, you don't need to go out and take vengeance on those that have tried to hurt you or those that have hurt you. Instead, I want you to go out and bless them. How in the world do we bless somebody that's hurt us? Well, just know this. God is a better judge than we are. God is a better discipliner than we are. Now let's go back to the beginning of this part of the passage. John says, after this, so after he hears these saints that are singing this song and playing their harps, he looks and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven is opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Now, I have a tendency to blow past stuff just because I'm kind of a quick mover, but I want to ask you, if you stopped for just a moment and you pictured what John just saw, how blown away would you be? Stop for a moment and just picture that you get to be in heaven, the sanctuary of the tent of witness, which I believe is an actual literal temple, Remember, there was an actual literal temple on the earth. I think there's going to be an actual literal temple in heaven. The reason that I believe that is, again, if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, if we just let the Bible teach us in Hebrews chapters 8 and 9, there is this long dissertation about how the earthly temple is simply a copy of the heavenly temple. 
Now, being the fact that there's going to be a heavenly temple that we're going to get to see for all of eternity, it would be good for us to understand what the earthly temple was all about. What was the earthly temple all about? God didn't need a house. He didn't need anybody to build him a house. So why this huge temple that Solomon built, that later Herod reconstructed? Why? What's the point in the temple? What was it all about? It's all about Jesus. See, all the rooms, all the furnishings, all the utensils that they used, all the water basins, all the sacrifices that were performed, it all pointed forward to a much better, greater, ultimate throne room or ultimate temple, heaven. It pointed forward to the ultimate furnishings and utensils, the blessings that we get when we get to heaven. And all of those sacrifices of animals pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now it's crazy to think that one day we're going to get to heaven and we're going to be reminded of just how loved we really are when we see Jesus in a body or with a body and the nail scars in his wrists and in his feet. Think about this for a moment. When Jesus took upon a body, he did it permanently. Now, opposed to what false religions like, like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses teach, Jesus has always existed. He has been one with God the Father for all of eternity. So he didn't come into existence when he took upon his body. He just partook in what we call the hypostatic union, where his two unions, his perfect humanity and his perfect divinity came together. But when he took upon that body, he took it for all of eternity. And then he ascended into heaven after his resurrection. We will get to be in heaven and see those nail scars in his wrists and in his feet. It's vitally important for us to understand that because we need to know what it is that Jesus was willing to go through on our behalf. And then we will be reminded of that forever in heaven. Can you imagine when you get to heaven, you're going to be reminded every single day of just how loved you are? And for some of us, that's a big deal because you might not come from the greatest home life. Maybe your marriage didn't turn out the way that you had anticipated. Maybe your kids rebelled and are not loving you the way that you had hoped they would. Well, one day, all of that is going to be dealt with and you're going to be in heaven with the Lord and you're going to get reminded every single day of just how much, how loved you are, how much you are cared for when we see what Christ did for us. Let me take us back to the passage. The angels that we see coming out of the sanctuary, they're clothed in pure and bright linen, which ultimately again symbolizes purity and righteousness. In order for them to rightly represent Christ, they've got to be holy and they've got to be righteous. Do you know that you can remain pure and righteous and still have tons of fun and joy? And that's what we're called to do. We are actually called to live in holiness and righteousness so that we're rightly representing Christ to the world. Now, I love to go work out with some of the young guys in the gym. It's a great mission field and a great opportunity to share the gospel. And as I'm sharing the gospel with them, I share with them any chance I get, hey guys, you're working out really hard and that's great and you're looking good and you're buff and I'm like, but did you know that that body is still going to get old no matter how hard you work out, no matter how hard you try, you're going to sag and die. And then you're going to stand before the Lord. And this body isn't going to matter for much. See, Paul said this, physical training is of some value, but training in godliness has value in this life and in the life to come. Because this is just a shell. One day it's going to go into the ground, I'm going to get a brand new resurrection body, but my soul is going to go on forever. So what are you doing 
but the eternal part of you that is going to go on forever. I'm praying for us as believers that with, even with the temporary part, we're honoring and we're glorifying the Lord, that we're remaining in purity and in righteousness so that we can rightly represent Jesus to the world. It also says that these angels are wearing golden sashes around their chests. It's interesting to study why they were wearing golden sashes. Oftentimes, somebody that was sent out on behalf of a king to exercise judgment or vindication for the king would be given a, given a golden sash. So when they would show up riding on horses with their golden sash, people of that town knew, uh-oh, we're in a little bit of trouble. So these angels show up with golden sashes around their chests, indicating that they're on a mission of judgment. They're on a mission of vindication. And we saw that in the rest of this passage. Now again, let us not forget, as we spoke of last week, that God's going to judge mankind quickly and severely, so I want that to, to produce some sense of urgency in us as followers of Jesus to go tell as many people as we can about him before either we're called home via death or the rapture. Verse 7 says that there are seven golden bulls full of the wrath of God. In Revelation 8, we had read that the prayers of the saints were mixed with incense and then fire, and then they were cast to the earth in the form of plagues. So somehow, the prayers of these saints are becoming plagues and judgments poured out by God. Now, I don't know exactly what that means for us. I don't think that we sit around praying that God would just start wiping people out. But I think that we do continue to pray that God's will be done. And many times that needs to be done through us. Now, this should also calm our hearts and our minds, knowing that God is going to take care of all of the evil that's ever been perpetrated against us. It means we don't have to get riled up. It means we don't have to take revenge. In fact, we can do the exact opposite, as we mentioned before. We can actually bless those that persecute us. When somebody slaps us on the cheek, we can turn it and let them hit the other one also. Here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we cower. It doesn't mean that we back down doesn't mean that we remain silent in the face of evil. Many of you have heard this saying before, but do you know what only one thing needs to happen in order for evil to flourish? Good men do nothing. Good men and women just do nothing. I won't get too deeply into this, but Dr. Erwin Lutzer, who I have mentioned before, wrote a great book called When a Nation Forgets God. And in it, he chronicles what happened to the nation of Germany and how Adolf Hitler and 14 of his minion were able to rise up and start a regime that almost took the world over. I don't know if you have studied much about Germany's history, but Germany was quite possibly a more Christianized nation than the United States of America. If that's the case, what happened? Where were all the followers of Jesus? Well, again, if you just simply go back to the 1940s and you begin to study what was happening at that time, the church was beginning to move more and more in, into a period where they did not want to rock the boat. We don't want to get political. We don't want to jump into things that aren't our business. Besides, they didn't have this term yet. Could you picture them saying it? Well, there's a separation of church and state. Okay, let's stop misquoting things and be clear as to what certain things actually mean. The separation of church and state actually means that the state can't dictate how we worship. 
It doesn't mean that y'all should stay out of politics. It doesn't mean that you should stay out of hard things. In fact, quite the opposite. Since the church is the last line of defense for that which is right and that which is holy and that which is godly, the church of all people have to be speaking into the culture. I notice that the angels never keep their mouths shut. They speak exactly what God says. God says, hey, my angels, I want you to go and I want you to proclaim this. And then it goes beyond the angels, but to us. Now, we will never be angels, but interestingly enough, we're given the same charge. Go out and tell the world about Jesus. Tell them what will happen if they don't trust him. Listen, have you ever done those personality profile studies? You know, the whole sanguine, choleric, melancholy type deal. I'm a sanguine through and through. If y'all don't know what a sanguine is, that's the partier that just wants everybody to be happy. So I don't get a kick out of people being upset and not happy with me. I want everybody to be smiling. However, what I want and what my personality is, is not on par with God's will and what he wants. So therefore, his will always takes precedence over what I want and how I feel, which means that there are numerous times where God has told me, Dave, like it or not, this is what you're preaching this morning. Dave, like it or not, this is what you need to go say to your neighbor. Dave, like it or not, this is what you're going to go say to your family members, and so on. And whenever I try to fight against that, it always turns out to be a disaster. But when I simply trust and obey the Lord, not so that he'll love me more, not so that I'll get brownie points in heaven, but simply because I love him, it's amazing that regardless of what happens, There is this peace that passes all understanding, knowing that he's in control, and I can lay my head down at night, knowing that God has been glorified and worshiped and lifted up. I want to finish today off with reminding you that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is an answer to the mess. For us as believers, it comes down to treasuring Jesus above all else. And the way that we do that is by getting to know him more and more and making him known. Now, I want to pause before I wrap this up and just ask you, just this week, just since last Sunday from today, how's it gone for you in getting to know Jesus better? Have you had good time with him? Have you found a place where it's just you and him? Have you had that period of time set aside for just you and him? Have you had a plan for when you get into his word? And these questions are not meant to make you feel guilty. It's just to make you think through. Have I geared my day planner and my checkbook towards bringing Jesus glory? If so, you're living out your intended purpose, which is to worship him for who he is and to worship him for what he's done. I have to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior if I want to be able to experience what John experienced. Because again, I want to make sure that the gospel is clear. When I say the gospel to people in Albuquerque or in other places in New Mexico or wherever we go, I think people have a misnomer of what the gospel is. What is the good news? Well, the good news is if I just do enough good work, God will allow me into his heaven. Do you know there's not a single good thing that you can do to get God to let you into his heaven? And there's a reason we're going to take a look at it shortly when we take communion, but we have this record of debt accrued against us that we could never pay. So Jesus had to come and pay it for us. And man, I tell you what, if there's anything to celebrate, it's a time to celebrate that Jesus has paid the debt. 
that all of our sins have been erased, eradicated, taken away as far as east is from the west. That is a great reason to celebrate not only today, but every day. Even tomorrow morning, even though it's a Monday, you can wake up and celebrate knowing that you have been delivered from the power of sin, from the power of death. That gives us great reason to rejoice. What a great reason to sing. What a great thing to remember as we get ready to take communion. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you and praise you again for who you are, and we are so thankful, Lord, that you allow us to come and to worship you. Lord Jesus, thank you for the fact that you have pardoned us from all of our sin, that you have canceled the record of debt. And Lord, as we get ready to take communion, may this not be just another thing where we go through the motions, but Lord, may this be a time where we remember just how blessed we are. Would you remind us just how loved we are, that while we will get to see it in heaven, we don't have to wait till then to be reminded of just how much you love us and what you have done on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us.